Now, today we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We started it last week, and 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, many of Paul's letters to the churches were written to help them deal with persecution from the outside. But 1 Corinthians is different because 1 Corinthians is a book written by Paul to the church in Corinth about how to help them deal with conflict from the inside. And they're experiencing great conflict and division inside the church, and Paul is trying to help them navigate that as a body of believers. Now, Paul planted this church, helped plant this church with some other people, and he spent 18 months there in Corinth helping this church grow. And then he moves on in his missionary journey, and now about five years later, he's writing from the city of Ephesus, this letter to the church in Corinth. Now listen, Paul had written an earlier letter to the church in Corinth, which we don't have record of that today, but um, the church wrote Paul back uh, a letter after his first letter to them, and bringing several problems to his attention. And then 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to that letter. So really, 1 Corinthians might be called 2 Corinthians, and the second might be called 3rd if you look at the first letter he wrote, which we don't have um, any record of that today. But Corinth, we discussed Corinth last week and described to you the kind of city that it was. And we said it was a, a, a diverse city. We said it was a prosperous city. And they are known for the love of pleasure. It's a party town. There are certain places that you think of when you think of those kinds of places in the U.S. Um, but the sins of the culture there in Corinth are now bleeding into the church. An example of this was the Greeks, the Greeks had this view of, of rhetoric and the ability for someone to speak. The Greeks loved being mesmerized by these traveling speakers that would travel through their areas. And sometimes they, they just loved hearing new things. That was part of the Greek culture. They loved new ideas, new thoughts, new, new things. And this cultural value became a sin in the church as divisions rose around who was the best speaker. And so there's all this competition, um, not caused by the leaders, but in the followers, the people are saying, I'm of this person, I'm of that person. And they're, they're dividing over who's the best speaker and who they follow after. Now, for today's passage, I need you to think of two words a little bit differently. The first is the word wisdom. We see wisdom, we think in our minds, we hear that word, we think of, oh, that's good. Wisdom is always good. And we have a whole section of the Bible dedicated to it. It's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But when Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians, especially in the first couple of chapters, he doesn't mean it in the biblical sense, but he means this worldly wisdom. So don't let that throw you. When you hear that word wisdom, he's talking about something negative and, and how the Greeks might view wisdom and knowledge, this worldly type of wisdom. That's what he's referring to. The second word I need you to think of differently, at least for today, is the word cross. Because if you've been raised in the church, when you hear that word, you, you picture the symbol that's on most church buildings, the decoration around someone's neck. You think of the concept that, that Jesus you know, died on a cross to pay the price for my sins. And that's where our minds go. You associate it with forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, all good things. But for right now, I need you to forget about all of that. Because to the Greeks and the Romans, a cross was this horrific instrument of torture used to bring about the worst kind of death for some of the worst kind of criminals. And that's all it was to them. That's what they would think of. When they heard cross, they didn't think of what you thought of. They thought of, yeah, that's awful. 
It's like our electric chair or lethal injection. They wouldn't even allow a Roman citizen to die on a cross. That's how bad it was. They would save it for the people that weren't considered Roman citizens. They wouldn't even say the word in, in certain company. It wasn't considered polite to even say the word. So they would have never seen it as anything positive, much less a decoration on top of a building. Uh, this past week, I was talking to our, our women's pastor, Amy Jimenez, who uh, she has a really good, strong connection with the women's prison out there in Gatesville. And you may not know this, but there are women that are currently on death row there in Gatesville. And she goes and ministers to these people. And, uh, and she has a, there's a person who's there on death row who has asked Amy to kind of be her mentor as she is moving. There's no date set for this woman's execution, but she is now a believer, a Christ follower. And it's been really cool to hear the testimony from Amy about this woman and her faith, her newfound faith, and just how she sees things so differently now that she has come to know Christ. But in, in talking to Amy about this woman's one day coming execution, possibly, it is so hard to talk about and just wrap your mind around this idea that you're in jail, in prison, and you, you know eventually you're going to die because you're on death row. And I, I, can, I can feel when I'm talking to Amy about this, this kind of situation, there's almost like this, this angst I feel like I, I want to get out of this conversation because I, I just I can't fathom the idea of, of being in that situation. And so we, we know it's hard to talk about these things, something like execution. Well, that's what the cross was. It was an execution instrument. And it's difficult for us to imagine that as we think of it only in theological terms. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So this idea that God would come in the flesh and die on a cross would be the most foolish idea for someone that was living in that world. It would seem foolish to the Greeks because how could someone be seen as powerful if they suffer the ultimate penalty from Rome? How could that be seen as, as a powerful Messiah if they're going to suffer the, the, the ultimate penalty from Rome? And for the Jews, the cross seemed like foolishness because they're expecting this Messiah to come and to conquer the Romans, not to be executed by them, so you can see how for the Jews and the Greeks, the idea of the cross just seems like total foolishness. There's a, a picture. This is called like ancient graffiti. And this is uh, hard for you guys to read what that is, but I think it's in Rome. I could be wrong about that. I forgot to look up the location, but there is a, um, a picture, an ancient picture. And the left is what it actually looks like. The right is someone took a drawing to make it, you could make out what it says and what it looks like. It looks like what you might find on, like, I don't know, like, it's like kids' artwork. But the sad reality is that is a picture of a donkey that someone put on a cross. And there's a person there worshiping this donkey on a cross. And this is an ancient way that, where Christianity was mocked. They have found this graffiti, I think, in Rome. And the statement in a different, in a different language, it says, Alexa Menos, which is a person's name, Alexa Menos worships his God. So you can see how in that culture, the idea that somebody would die on a cross and you're going to worship this person who died on a cross, this horrific instrument of torture, the cross, the crucifix, that that's the person you're going to worship as your God. And so they were 
roundly criticized, roundly mocked in that culture. Even today, if you are, are the team that went to Houston knows this, but even today, if you talk to a Muslim, a Muslim will say that they believe Jesus was a great prophet. They claim him as a great prophet for their religion, but they will say, we do not believe that he is God. And they would say, there's lots of different theories and ideas about um, how they think Jesus may or may not have died on a cross, but there are different theories about that. But they do not believe that God would come in the flesh and stoop so low, and he for sure would not die on a cross. That seems like foolishness to someone that believes that religion. And so the message of the gospel is going to seem like foolishness. The word folly in this passage is the word where we get the English word moron. Don't call someone that, but that's what the actual word means. And it seems like foolishness to the unbelieving world. I mean, just think of all the crazy things that you need to believe to be a Christian. I mean, God put on human flesh, became a man. There's the virgin birth. There's that he lived a perfect life without sin, that he, he uh, performed any miracles, that he fulfilled prophecies, that he had this, he never did anything wrong, so he had an innocent death. He resurrected on the third day, and then he ascended to heaven be with the Father. I mean, have you, have you ever explained the gospel to someone before? And as you're explaining what you believe to someone, you think to yourself, wait a second, like, what am I saying? Doesn't this sound crazy? Like, I, if the person is a skeptic and not yet a believer, you acknowledge it, and they're asking, and you're, inside you're going, I know it sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. And you start to maybe even question and doubt it yourself sometimes. But listen, here's some good news for you. Whatever someone's belief system is, they have to believe some crazy things. Even the atheist has to believe some crazy things. Like, how did we get here? How do you explain morality? How do you explain the values of, like, truth and falsehood? How do you explain all that apart from there being a creator God that has revealed those things to us? So not to get into the weeds, but whatever religion someone ascribes to, you can't escape it that there has to be some crazy things that you believe, no matter what you say you believe. And the same goes for Christianity. Now, the Bible says that many would view it that way, that you might be tempted to see. You might be tempted to see Christianity this way. Like, it does sound kind of like crazy foolishness sometimes. But whenever you sense that in yourself, you might be tempted to do what the Corinthians were doing. We, we start to think of, like, how can I tap into, like, some of the, the worldly techniques to make the message sound more appealing to the skeptic? And for them back then, it was, like, worldly wisdom, and we got to be re really, really eloquent and sound really intelligent and use, like, the, the legal reasoning and the philosophy. And listen, there's a time and place for all that. But for us today, it might be some other methods that we try to attach to the preaching of the gospel to try to sell it to somebody, to make it sound more reasonable and credible to their ears. And we can at times dress up the message in our own flesh so that it's presentable or acceptable to the, these listening ears. And so we do that at times. We're tempted toward that at times in our culture. But listen, the message of the cross seems foolish, but it's not just the message. It's also the method that we use to proclaim it, which is this thing called preaching whether it's on a stage or even in person with someone one-on-one. -on -one. I've told you before when I shared my testimony last, uh, this past summer, I told you how um, I was like this reluctant person to go into full-time ministry. And I told you that story a few months ago. And I tried 
very hard to not go into it, and here's why, because of my pride. Because I remember sitting, I can recall even when I was in seminary and starting to head down the road of, of, of full-time vocational ministry, that one night my wife and I, we were still dating at the time, and we went to someone's, we were hanging out with this couple, I think that she worked with the, the lady at, the, at her work, and so we go to like this downtown Fort Worth uh, event, and we go to eat dinner afterwards in this restaurant, and we're just talking and hanging out and having a good time. And I remember t- talking to the guy, and th- these are both believers in front of us. And he was, you know, I'm in seminary, I'm in school, and, and he's like kind of on his way becoming an architect. And I'm sitting there thinking like, man, his job, I, I feel kind of jealous that like when someone says, you know, what do you do? I kind of want to be able to say I'm an architect. That sounds cooler to me than like I'm a pastor. That's how my mindset was back then. And I'm in seminary studying for, to, go to, to, to go to school and, and to do this thing, and yet at times still feeling like, ah, oh, to, the, to the people out there in the world, like, this doesn't sound so credible. This, this sounds kind of foolish. So you're going to be a p- person who just preaches and proclaims the gospel, and that's going to be your job. And I know for you, that as you're thinking through, what am I going to do with my life, you're thinking through those things right now. You're like, well, what do I want to be able to say to somebody when they say, what do you do? And you're thinking through those questions right now. And I will tell you that some of you may limit what God does with you because you're worried about what society thinks of you. Want to be respected and admired when you say, here's what I do for a living. And at times you're going to feel foolish for being a Christ follower. Whether, whether you have a job that's just out there in the world, just working, living life, and you're trying to follow Christ in that job, you're going to feel foolish most of the time when you begin sharing your faith with someone. But here's the good news. The Bible tells us that we're going to feel that way, that we're going to feel that way. So look with me at at verse 20. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and seek wisdom. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So again, whenever you hear the word wisdom, we think of this idea like good biblical wisdom, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's referring to this worldly wisdom and what makes sense in their eyes. So in Corinth, they would have these traveling speakers that would come through the city, and sometimes for education, sometimes for entertainment. And one of their values in that culture was their ability to use words, like public speaking and debates. Uh, We see this today in our culture where, um, hey guys, can we cut it out over here, please? That's kind of distracting for me too. So um, we have today, we have debates everywhere. And you guys know this to be true. So we turn everything into a debate because conflict is more interesting. It just is. We see it in politics. We see it in sports. Some of the highest rated shows on ESPN are what? They're debate shows. Where they will throw out just some theory or idea and everyone will just kind of go at it on the set, right? And, and, and talk about the, the pros and cons of whatever's being put out there. Um, after a political debate, what do we say? We say, who won the debate? Many times it's not just what they said, but how they said it. Somebody could be totally wrong, but still win the argument. 
because they just did one of those takedowns in public, right? In Greek culture, they weren't as focused on the truth or right or wrong, but more like the form and the style, right? And I think we do this today in our world as well. In verse 21, we see that every false religion, look back at verse 21 in your Bibles, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So in, in, uh, in verse 21, we see that every false religion seeks to climb towards God through their own man-centered wisdom. And again, back to, we, we mentioned our, our Houston mission trip on Wednesday. You guys heard stories about that. We went to go see a Buddhist temple, a Hindu temple, and a mosque, a Muslim mosque. And you could hear, as each person presented their ideas and their religion, you could just hear this idea that mankind has always tried in his own efforts, his own thoughts, his own philosophies to try to get to God and to try to gain access to God, or in Hindu's case, to the gods. And we see that here, and this is what's happening there in the church in Corinth, in the secular world in Corinth. So mankind has always sought through his own wisdom to know God, but Paul says in his wisdom, God turns their wisdom into a dead end. So they don't find what they're looking for in their, their worldly kind of wisdom. And then look at verse 22. Again, verse 22 says the Jewish people were always seeking after a sign. And they're always wanting God to prove himself to them. So when Jesus was here, many of the religious elite would, would say to Jesus, you know, show us a sign to, to prove that you're the Messiah. But then after witnessing many miracles, they still didn't believe much of the time because they didn't want to believe that he was who he said he was. So the Jews would seek after these signs or the, these proofs from God, but the Greeks sought after worldly wisdom. But it's only when someone gives up their reliance on the worldly wisdom that we know so much about, their own understanding, that they can truly find Jesus. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage them to understand here as they seek to be a light there in the city of Corinth. Look at verse 24 again. I want you to notice where it says, it says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want you to notice something here in verse 24. Jesus becomes what the Jew and the Greek are both looking for. So the Jews are looking for powerful signs and Jesus Dying on the cross was the greatest display of God's power, even though it looks like his greatest weakness. And the Greeks are looking for wisdom, and Jesus dying on the cross was the greatest display of wisdom the world's ever seen, even though it looks like total foolishness. So look how Jesus becomes the answer to what both groups are wanting and desiring now, not only does the message of the cross look foolish to the world, but those who follow, that's us, who follow Christ, are going to look foolish as well. Look at verse 26 through 29, where it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, we might think that in a city like Corinth, that God might, you know, choose some impressive people. You know, you've got this, 
city. There's lots of wealth and prosperity, lots of commerce and trade going on. So we, we better bring out uh, the big guns. We better, you know, find some people in the city who are credible, who are like socially upstanding people, maybe some of the wealthy, the movers and shakers, people that everyone's going to respect. Let's get those people to be Christians first, but that's not what happens. That's not what ever happens. And so we might think that God might choose the impressive people, but when has he ever done that? He didn't do it when he chose Joseph or when he chose even Moses, who couldn't even speak very good, very well. I threw that in there for you guys, right? Or when he chose Ruth, she seemed pretty insignificant, or Samuel, or there's David, who was the youngest. Uh, there's Esther, there's the nation of Israel themselves, there's the, all the disciples, then there's Paul. What a story does he have? And then Jesus himself, he, he comes from humble beginnings as a carpenter, and he wasn't impressive outwardly. You know all those Jesus movies you guys watch, or The Chosen? Jesus didn't look like that. They always find, like, the guy, like, that's going to be Jesus. And it's like, that's probably not what he looked like. Because the Bible actually says that he was sort of an average and normal. And, and he wasn't that impressive outwardly. Even his ministry was focused on the lowly in that society. And so the same holds true in Corinth. The church there was, was very small in this big city. And the people weren't all that impressive. The first Christians weren't all that impressive from the outside. Now, why does God choose people like that? Well, verse 29 tells us, look at your Bibles. Verse 29 tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So how should that affect how you see yourself? Because some of you have surrendered to Christ, and now you're a Christ follower. And you had to humble yourself and recognize your need for a Savior but now that you're saved, you, questioned, you question whether God can use you. Now, why is that? Well, you look around, you see people that have more ability, more gifting, they're more impressive, and you say, you know, that, that God can't use me because I'm not, I'm not talented enough. No, you're, you're perfectly qualified. This guy named Ryan Welsh, he said it like this. We are no more capable of ministry success because of our abilities than we are righteous because of our actions. If our salvation begins with this recognition that I have nothing to offer God in my own strength, then wouldn't it make sense that a life of ministry starts the same way? If you and I, if you look at our lack of talent and say, you know, God can't use me, well, that's who he always uses, so, so listen, don't let fear dictate what you will and won't do for God. If you're thinking right now, there are certain things that God might call me to do, and I'm just not, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do it because I'm not good at stuff like that. Well, that's what everyone in history has said that's been used by God in a powerful way. Because you know what God needs? God needs empty vessels. He needs people that can say, yeah, I don't have the strength. I don't have the talent. I don't have the abilities. That's the person that God wants to work in and through. And so if, that's, if you're saying that about yourself, like, then you're perfectly qualified to be used by God. Listen, if you are someone who's fearful of lots of things, fear is always a faith opportunity. God can, 
God can use fear in your life to grow your faith. If you weren't a little bit scared, then I'd be worried about you. Your faith may never be stretched and grown apart from fear sometimes, and that's how it grows, is it becomes a faith opportunity. Look at verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who, came, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So remember, these Corinthians, they're dividing over who's the best preacher in that, in that area, in that church. Who's the best leader who would baptized them? They're boasting about who they followed. And Paul says, listen, you can boast in the person you follow as long as that person is Jesus. You can boast in him. Listen, the gospel leaves no room for boasting. The people that God called to himself in Corinth, they weren't called because of who they were, but despite who they were and what they were. And when, when someone comes to Christ, look what this verse says we receive. It says we receive righteousness. It says we, re, we receive sanctification and redemption. I want to lay these out for you, what these actually mean. There's either, these are the three tenses of salvation. There's righteousness, which is we've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's sort of in the past. Then there's sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's present. And then last, you have future redemption. We will be saved from the presence of sin when you and I enter into glorification. So there's past, present, future uh, dimension to our salvation. And this is what Jesus has accomplished for those of us who are in Christ. And if we sense pride creeping into our minds and hearts because of that reality, Paul's saying here, he's saying, no, 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 listen, you boast only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. So this concept that the power of the cross would bring worldly wisdom to its knees, there's lots of little ways we see that playing out, I think, throughout history in, in individuals, people's, people's lives, but also we've seen it play out in history on a large scale as well. And so, for example, I want to tell you a little story. Many, many years ago, I think it was back in 2006, uh, my wife and I, we, um, we did like this excursion. We went to Rwanda on a mission trip. And on the back end of the trip, we decided, let's do a, a, a trip to Europe on the way back and go see some sites. And so we go to Rome. And uh, if you've been to Rome, you've seen this place. This is the famous Colosseum, the ruins of the Colosseum there in Rome. And... Um, Whenever you walk through the city, you can just feel the anticipation. I'm going to go see this landmark that's famous, this world-famous landmark that everyone talks about. When you go, you got to see the Colosseum if you go to Rome. You've got to see it. And so we went there, and then you, then you go and you take the little the photo. There's Courtney. Uh, this is, like, I think, 2006, I believe. And uh, so, yeah, you walk in, and you see it kind of like it's a photo op. We're going to take a photo at the Colosseum. And then what I felt in myself and what my wife, I think, felt in her mind and heart as well is that you sit there and you go, now that you're there, you go, man, like you're staring at this floor that used to be covered. And those little channels beneath where they would hide things sometimes. And, and you start to feel this gravity hit you of like what took place here. At first, you're so excited to see this landmark. And then you do the selfie thing. And then you, then you start to realize, wait a second, like my people were killed in here. They were, like, put to death in here, in this arena. And arenas like it all over the Roman Empire. And, and suddenly you just, you, it, the place just feels dark almost instantly. Like, whoa, this, this, the gravity just hit, hit me of, like, what this place used to be. 
I mean, it's a building where Christians were literally torn to pieces by wild animals in front of thousands of people while they cheered them on. You see, Rome was the most powerful empire on the planet, and this arena displayed that reality. But you sense the darkness of this place whenever you go visit the Colosseum there in Rome. But if you walk from there in a straight line from this Colosseum to just three miles away, you're going to find this other building. And this is St. Peter's Basilica. Now listen, as a caveat, for the record, there's been a lot of corruption and abuse by the church. There was corruption in building this, this beautiful structure, which I also don't believe was the best use of money, right, for the church. But I'm laying all that aside right now, and I just want you to think in terms of what these two buildings symbolize. One is the power of Rome, and one is the, the worldwide church. One symbolizes the power and the brutality of Rome, and the other symbolizes the church worldwide. One lies in ruin, while the other one is one of the most visited landmarks on the planet. And you see how the weak shame the strong. And the weak shame the strong. And what made this stark contrast possible is this reality. This is a sculpture of Michelangelo. And he's, it's, it's Mary holding the, the bloody, broken, beaten body of Jesus Christ. And this is in that church. It's a famous artwork. And listen, but here's the reality. Uh, after Jesus suffered and died on a cross for our sins, three days later, he was resurrected. Listen, you've got to believe some foolish things to be a Christian. And this contrast of, of the weak shaming the strong would continue with the early apostles the early, the early church, 2,000 years later, here we are. It's obvious that the weak things of the world have shamed the strong and that divine foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Andrew Wilson says it like this, the cross presents us with the most extraordinary inversion in history. It pits the epitome of weakness against the epitome of strength, and weakness wins. So you guys are going to go to your breakouts here for a discussion. And so if you're new and don't know where to go, um, 